This is a podcast by The Straits Times. If you're feeling anxious, angry, and depressed about climate change, you're not alone. A growing number of people around the world in rich and poor nations are increasingly worried about the future. Anxiety about climate change can trigger feelings of helplessness and anger at governments and businesses for not doing enough to take action. There's disappointment that leaders are not treating the climate crisis as a real global crisis. Yet there is hope. In this special episode of Green Pulse, The Straits Times US Bureau Chief Nirmal Ghosh speaks to Dr. Britt Ray, an expert on climate change and mental health at Stanford University's School of Medicine. Dr. Ray describes how climate anxiety is a mental health issue, but also looks at ways to cope. For instance, looking at positive examples of adapting to climate change and positive climate policies and the benefits of building strong social bonds within communities to reduce the feelings of being isolated and alone. Collective understanding and action can be a powerful uniting force, she says. Here is Nirmal's interview with Dr. Ray. Dr. Ray, there is a growing body of data and of literature, in fact, like your book and so forth, on climate anxiety. Is there wide enough recognition of this aspect of the climate crisis? We're in a moment of sea change around that. It is an emerging construct that policymakers, governments, businesses, mainstream media platforms are acknowledging as, as serious for society to grapple with. I say this because of the invitations that are coming my way from also towards my colleagues, whether that's the U.S. Foreign Service or the World Economic Forum or Fortune 500 companies who want deep dive information sharing sessions for their own constituents, for their employees, so that they can have some perspective on the anxiety about the climate crisis that they are feeling. So I would say, yeah, it's it's certainly not only an academic curiosity, It's not only something that affects young people. We often hear about how young people are the most distressed about the climate crisis. And while that is true, it's also that anyone of any age who understands that their own health is tied up with the health of the environment is subject and vulnerable to potentially feeling some amount of distress and or anxiety about the climate crisis. So the short answer to your question is is yes, it is increasingly so validated by these different societal actors. That young people are reluctant to have children in the face of the accelerating climate crisis has been quite well documented. Are we seeing the death of optimism in some respects? Yet at the same time, of course, this does trigger anger and action. And you have written about turning anxiety into action. You have written as well of internal activism. Could you elaborate on your thoughts on that? Yes. Well, it depends on what we mean by action. So I'll get to that point in a moment. But to back up and, and speak to optimism, what we see when young people say that they don't think it's fair to children to bring them into this world, given what the climate crisis is going to impose upon young people who have to grow up in a warming world, what we are hearing is a sense of futurelessness. 
a sense of diminishing opportunity, a sense of increasing traumatic turbulence, just getting baked into the background layer of our world. And while that's already the reality for many marginalized populations, even the most privileged and enfranchised young people who have a certain amount of climate awareness and process it in a particular way might feel that they are no longer safe in this world, that it's a kind of chronic sense of insecurity that the climate crisis can engender within young people when they're talking about not wanting to have kids. And we also see that, you know, there's a variety of reasons that people might explain their reproductive hesitancy as it relates to climate concerns. It's about not wanting to overburden an already burdened planet with more human activity and consumption and waste and extraction, which, you know, especially those living high carbon intensive lifestyles in the industrialized Western northern global north nations that you know, share the bulk of responsibility for why the climate crisis is the way it is. Um, you know, you, you hear that kind of a form of um, wanting to live more lightly on the planet. But far more often than that, it's about being deathly afraid, feeling some amount of panic or terror or despair or depression about how a warming world is going to treat any child who has to grow up and deal with the societal consequences of these disturbances in the climate system. So I I pause at this idea that it's the death of optimism because I've also seen people go on a pathway because what what we're talking about is not just a straight linear projection from, you know, experience of climate disasters or high awareness of the climate crisis towards depression, anxiety, despair. And then that's where a person remains. There's often a journey with peaks and valleys and different forms of processing and emotional strengthening, which could mean that someone who goes through a climate awakening that's so distressing to them that it causes a shock response and it can almost be internally shattering for them, they could get forms of community solidarity and support and emotional management tools and coping mechanisms and forms of taking collective action that they come out the far side of grief and despair, more convicted to take on the climate crisis than ever before. And then they become what's sometimes referred to as a stubborn optimist, you know, just that we're fully in, fully convicted. I will never stop working to address this crisis and mitigate its harms, no matter how dark it gets. And that's a type of brightness of mind and courageous optimism that is very alive in the climate movement. And those people have also felt the spiky ends of climate despair and depression. So it's it's a bit tricky to just sum up. But yeah, I think your your latter point about the antidote to despair not being action. We think of action as this external action, right? About policy change, hitting the streets in protest, lobbying, <laughs> you know, causing internal change at big influential organizations. But there's also action which is inward focused um the internal elements of strengthening our our emotional resilience of being able to be with suffering right to have mindfulness skills or other forms of existential coping that allow us to observe the despair and the depression and not get hijacked by it or not fall apart because of it and still see that we can you know, generate meaning and purpose from that suffering and sometimes even 
joy and lightness in the face of it. So that's the internal processing that is also, you know, Caroline Hickman in my book, if you continue reading it, you'll see she talks about internal activism. And so the argument I'm making there is that internal activism and external activism or internal action and external action together become a much more robust way of living well with the climate crisis, a.k.a. antidote to despair, than just trying to offload our pain and suffering, which is actually very appropriate to feel mm-hmm. some distress about the climate crisis given yep. the external situations we live in, rather than trying to just offset all that struggle and pain into external action as though it will remove it. That's when we see some inadequacy. And if people are suppressing their emotions and they don't have skills for dealing with the the, the negative quality of them. Fascinating. Sorry to jump around a bit in this conversation, but climate anxiety is sometimes dismissed as a cliche, as the lot of the industrialized countries. Millions in the global south uh, might say we don't have that luxury of climate anxiety. And you write about this, in fact, in your book. Could you elaborate a bit on that? But it is much more widespread, isn't it? It's much more widespread. We have data since the book was published. The largest global sample to date was collected of uh, close to 13,000 young people around the world across low, middle, and high-income settings in more than 30 countries. And it concluded that climate anxiety is hurting mental health everywhere, from Brazil to the Philippines to Uganda to England and so on and so forth. Um, this is not just a phenomenon of the worried well, so to speak, where only the, the most privileged among us who have not faced existential threat before suffer the most because the climate crisis is the first thing to make them feel unsafe in their human life. What we see instead, including the 10 country study that I write about in the book that I was a co-author of when we looked across India, Nigeria, Philippines, the US, UK, France, Australia, Portugal, Brazil, um, you know, 45% of young people globally say that their thoughts and feelings about the climate crisis impact daily tasks. So functioning in terms of eating, sleeping, concentrating, going to school, going to work, these these regular simple tasks. Um, but then when we looked in India, Nigeria, the Philippines, countries in the global south who are already facing the brunt of direct climate impacts, that was much higher, 67%, 74% functional impairment. And we look at the injustice of this, right? Um, which needs to be tended to in terms of a mental health response as these countries are the least responsible for creating the mess, polluting emissions. So it's not that surprising <laughs> when you think about it, because of course it's coming on top of other stressors to other social determinants of mental health and well-being, like poverty, <laughs> perhaps living under an authoritarian regime, um, other things that really do determine how one is able to go through their day and, and feel healthy, happy, secure. But I think the problem is our language. Our language is inadequate, right? So if you're talking to a bunch of people in Bangladesh about if they have climate anxiety, even if translated into their language, they might say, what are you talking about? I've never heard of that. That, You know, I'm worried about not being flooded. I'm worried about how I can feed my family. And so the, the threats that are most salient are about those particular experiences on their doorstep right here, right now. But when you take it from a system level perspective, you of course see that those threats that are most salient are direct 
consequences of the climate crisis um, or they're exacerbated by a worsening climate crisis. So in that way, we need better language. We need it to be more contextually suited to each person's plight. Um, and the field is trying to grapple with that in terms of how we measure this and, and so on and so forth. But basically, no, it's it's kind of the same old story. Those who are the most marginalized and paying the price of inequitable systems in which we're living also tend to experience the most distress that's associated with the climate crisis. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. And now back to our podcast episode. Okay, so one of the ways that more people know about the climate crisis is because we live in an increasingly interconnected media world. How do you think the media is or has been reporting on climate? Now, if you're a realist, you can't help reporting on it, but then that does risk it becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy of doom. Of course, there is a mix. There are hopeful stories in the media as well. What do you think of the job the media is doing and the challenges of reporting something like this? That's a great question. For the most part, when the climate crisis has been reported on, which has, A, never been enough, given the scale of the emergency and what it means for the futurity of humanity, it, it tends to be reporting on the threat and on the impact that's observable in cascading change around the world and disasters, which sound the alarm for the millionth time, tell us how much trouble we're in, and don't often pair those stories with real-world examples of how communities are adapting, how people and their neighbors are coming together to organize and push for changes that mitigate against worsening harm. Um, it's not mirrored with agency growing opportunities that a reader can understand, hey, yes, I'm only one person, but there's actually a ton that I can do from where I'm already standing. It's not like I need to quit my job and become a new person to have any say in this collective crisis. And there, that that's massively damaging because there's this feeling of learned helplessness that many are subject to. Like, oh, well, you know, I, I might as well shrug another doomsday article and go back to watching Netflix because I feel so impotent on this issue. And I haven't been given hopeful stories of what my role even is, let alone journalists and, and you know, some artists are increasingly doing this. But largely that story of a better future and how we get there and what it means to implement policies and practices that can, can create a more regenerative earth are also missing from all of the climate coverage. It's just pretty much anxiety-inducing information that will trap us in a tightening tunnel possibility, and it can narratively foreclose our sense of what is possible in the future. That's what anxiety and depression do. And so that, when spread across a media ecosystem, of course, is doing damage to people's sense of possibility and understanding of agency in the climate crisis. Now, beyond that, what did we see in the pandemic? We saw media reporting on this front page news every single day for years, right? Death counts, hospital interventions, vaccine rollouts and availabilities. It was being taken seriously at the level that was required, at the scale demanded by the public health emergency underfoot. 
And that instills a sense of confidence that society is orienting itself towards the crisis, that authorities are on it. And, you know, it's top of mind. Now, if we were to pay attention to what the IPCC tells us, um, you know, the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, about the scale of danger we are in, the severity of the crisis, the true mobilization that's needed to prevent as much harm as possible, the climate crisis would also be reported on every day, front page news all around the world with hopeful actions about policies that are changing, ways that communities are adapting, um, improvements that are being made and tracking progress along the way. And it would engender a culture of emergency mode that would actually help people feel like we were somewhat on track rather than completely off the rails. And it's that sense of being completely off the rails and observing that current power holders, governments, leaders, nations, etc., are not taking it as seriously as the scientists tell us it ought to be taken. That makes the anxiety and distress worse because it can be linked with this feeling of betrayal, of um, moral injury, of being caught up in a system that is violating your sense of what's right and wrong. And we know from our 10 country study, for example, of 16 to 25 year olds, 10,000 of them around the world, that the climate thoughts and feelings that were so negative and distressing were significantly associated with a sense of being lied to by governments and betrayed by leaders. And, you know, there's there's a serious hypothesis that the distress could be lessened if power holders were demonstrating the right response that's commensurate with the science in terms of how young people would be feeling. So, yeah, I think the media obviously is responsible for a a piece here. And then there's social media and, you know, smartphone living in which people can get stuck doom scrolling on nothing but negative news and algorithms will perpetuate that, which can also be harmful. One last quick question. What is your message? What is your elevator pitch, as it were, on the issue of climate anxiety, the mental health ramifications of climate change and the environmental changes that we see around us? A, it's not a pathology. It is completely appropriate, reasonable to feel distress about the climate crisis because this is a global threat to our way of life and our future together on this planet. And at the same time, we need to put caring programs into place so that people don't become impaired by this distress. What that looks like must go far beyond the biomedical model of one-on-one therapy. While we need mental health professionals to continue to treat clients and patients who require their services in the climate crisis, of course, that's important. But we already have a shortage in many countries where those who need help can't receive it. And so we need to think innovatively about how we take care of each other with the mental health impacts of the climate crisis that can detract from well-being. What that looks like is spreading and scaling community-minded healing interventions in the places where we live. And there's a lot of models for doing that. There's ways of having peer support-led programs, lay-led programs, 
where mental health professionals, instead of becoming the caregivers themselves, they can actually train people in the community who don't have psychological expertise, but can take up the interventions and go out into their neighborhoods and help people who they're familiar with more effectively than primary care, even mm-hmm. clinical trials have shown this. Um, and that there's a lot that we can each do to stop thinking as an individual and see ourselves as part of a collective as we move through all of this change in the climate crisis. So by getting to know our neighbors, by working uh, to increase the social infrastructure in the places where we live, by addressing environmental problems that we care about in our local regions, what that tends to do is increase our social ties, social connectedness, social trust. In other words, we learn the skills of leading and following each other and achieving shared goals. And that all translates into increasing our social capital. And there's a lot of good research to show that communities with high social capital, when disasters hit, have far less mental disorder on the far side of the acute trauma, less anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder. They have more resilience than Mm -hmm. communities where social capital is low and where people are isolated. So really just being social animals and investing in our, our relationships because it's an investment in preventing poor mental health. And that is a public health approach to dealing with the climate mental health interconnection that we need to massively invest in and spread awareness around because it's available to the most vulnerable. It's cheap, you know, and it's more effective than thinking we're going to just have clinical visits to help us with trauma when we're dealing with disasters or pervasive anxiety and distress that starts to impair people's functioning. We need to really help people take shared ownership over their own mental health by bringing governments in to support that kind of of a move towards, yes, as I mentioned, public health approach here that builds resilience. That's really long-winded. That's not an elevator pitch, but there's many components to talk about. Dr. Britt Ray, thank you so much. Always fascinating to hear from you. Thank you. Thanks a lot. And that's a wrap for this special episode of Green Pulse. That was The Straits Times US Bureau Chief Nomal Ghosh and his guest, Dr. Britt Ray, who is an expert on climate change and mental health at Stanford University School of Medicine. 